Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This episode with Mike Summer. These are his questions for me. When I contacted him to be on my show, he said, I was just getting ready to contact you and I have some questions for you. So we finally got to the questions and here they are. Thanks, sponsors also Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Topps, Panini, and Upper Deck, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So these were Mike's questions. He had accumulated those, I don't know, since the last time we talked. I think I will be seeing him at the National, but I don't see him in the middle of the time. Like I said, I enjoy his podcast. He's a very helpful guy in the hobby that provides information that is useful. And I've used some of his stuff, and I had some questions about some of his stuff. So that's how this came. He was getting ready to contact me, and I jumped the gun. I contacted him and said, let's do some more podcasts. So thanks, Mike. Thanks, listeners. Here it is. It sounds like you're very fair in your pricing. What that requires, Mike, is that you've got to be buying. Exactly. Because if you're not buying right, you can't sell at half price unless you're buying at half of half price or better. Yeah, that's exactly right. When people are approaching me with offers or asking my thoughts on how can you make any money selling cards for 18 cents on sport lots, because I'm buying them for a half a cent a piece. If I'm able to pick up a big collection and buy these junk wax era boxes of cards for five bucks a piece, I'm happy if I can sell them for 10 bucks a piece within the same month as doubling my money in less than a month and having that go towards another collection. I'm happy to turn inventory that way. And for some of the more obscure or rare things, I'm a little bit higher on and I'm willing to stick a little bit higher. But if I'm able to get something at a good deal and I'm able to price it where I can make something on it and turn it fairly quick, I'm willing to do that. I found that keeps people coming back into the shop, that keeps people um, proactively reaching out to me and asking what I've got available because they know I'm moving through things. And so that's definitely one of the approaches I've taken to help build that base of business or that clientele. What I'm doing on my eBay lots, my proverbial 100 Jose Consecos, I think somebody could buy them for me and they're less than 18 cents for 100 of them. And they could put some of them on sport lots if they know it's a better brand or an earlier car. But are you tuned in to sport lots of what is more likely to sell there? Yeah, I have the most success from a baseball perspective. There's still a huge set building community that utilizes sport lots to build sets. I'm not even necessarily concerned that they have to be stars, but I'm more concerned that I'm buying a thousand or two thousand cards from the same set so that I've got a big swath of a set covered. So Heritage is a super popular set on sport lots. Bowman is a super popular set on sport lots, especially the prospects sets and the Chrome prospects sets. All is by far the biggest sport on sport lots. The others, if you've got a wide array of inventory, I've done well because I'll have people that come in and buy from a bunch of different things and consolidate that all into one seller. I just don't think I'm going to do that. The whole reason I started doing price guides in the first place is so that people would have a medium of exchange. They would know that, hey, here's a fair price for this. If it's wholesale, I give you half or whatever. If I'm getting some dupes or the condition, all that stuff, but... Still, the most fun I have is buying a larger collection. And, it's so and much if fun. it's multi-sport, that's cool. If it's different years, in fact, the newer stuff, it's given me a new education to keep up with the cards of the last 10 or 20 years, even 30 years when I wasn't as much buying packs and stuff. So 
it's been a lot of fun. It's a hobby that we can enjoy on so many levels. I know you were an avid collector. You had done some shows. You had an interest in, in a card shop early on before you really got things going. But your educational background was math and statistics. What was that trigger point where you decided you wanted to move more from just being cards as a hobby that you enjoyed going around and building that collection to starting a business that was going to be focused on cards? Basically, I was as much a dealer as I was a collector in the 70s. Okay. Because that's just what the advanced collectors were. You had to sell cards unless you run independently wealthy, which I was not. I made a good salary as a professor, but when I was a grad student, I didn't have that much money. So you're buying and selling, you're trading. Before I started doing price guides, I almost never went to a card show that I wasn't a dealer at the show. So I wasn't going to shows. And then all of a sudden I started the magazine. Then I'm really in business. I'm really a publisher and author, all that stuff. And then I never went to a show as a dealer after that. I only went as a observer or picking up type cards. Now I can just buy what I want to buy without anybody looking over my shoulder. Actually, people do still look over my shoulder sometimes, but that's okay. Yeah. So I think I had a business aspect to it right from the beginning. Maybe I haven't been clear about that, but in the early 70s, I was making good money, even though it was a pittance now, but I built a collection and just like you, it was self-funded, plus I had extra money. Uh, but a lot of that extra money got plowed into cards. So it's a business aspect to it. Even the early price guides were to facilitate the commerce of it. So I understood it couldn't just be two old guys getting together and trading dupes. It had to be broadened from there. I was a very serious dealer. And I was at most of the really big shows of the day. There weren't as many in those days. So there was like a show circuit. Each major town had one. They didn't overlap too much. And then obviously it got bigger and bigger to where you couldn't do that. But the 70s were a fabulous decade for me as a collector and a dealer. So then by the time that you started Beckett and went into that side of the business, there's a difference between having a deep level of industry knowledge and the knowledge of what it takes to be an independent dealer, like you just described. But it's a whole nother skill set to run an organization and lead an entire organization with, instead of just you and maybe a couple people who are helping you at a show, a whole team of people that are trying to run a big organization. For a leader, it takes humility sometimes to admit that you don't know everything. So I was curious, as you continue to ramp up Beckett, what did you do to further your understanding of running a company, running an organization, when you identified that there was an aspect of running Beckett that you were not familiar with, what did you do to either find somebody who had that skill set or build that skill set yourself? Two things. One is that it was incremental. Every month, it seemed like we're hiring somebody. Initially, we were just hiring for kind of skill and attitude and just good work ethic and versatility, jacks of all trades. But after we got up to a certain point, then we needed more specialists. So we need somebody to really work with a printer. The second concept, which I've never heard really discussed, I'm going to call empirical humility. You can put those words together and figure out what I mean. To be humble about something, you already figured out, Mike, that you're not very good at. It's easy to be humble 
when you've messed up or you've realized this is the limit and for me to go beyond that, I'm going to have to stop everything else I'm doing and get up to speed on some new programming language. I was a really good programmer and I did all the early programs. But to get to the next level, I would have had to stop everything else to gain a competency. I probably could have done it. And then there were other things like design. I was the designer for some of those early issues. Not so great there. So that's empirical humility. You learn humility by people saying, hey, what you did over here, that's really good. This other stuff, not so much. (laughs) And you think nobody gets all the gifts from God to be good in everything. Everybody's smart in a certain way and gifted in a certain way. And so empirically, growing up, you got to figure out, what are you good at? I was probably a lead by example guy, and I'm a good strategy guy. So I could figure out what needed to be done, and I could do it up to a certain level. And then I could bring somebody in and say, hey, can you take it from here? And I really was blessed to have some fabulous employees. That's when it really fully blossomed. Was that something that had already established within yourself before you started Beckett? Or was were those lessons that you learned along the way as you were ramping up, like you said? Yes. How much of that was intuitive or had already been ingrained in you from your parents or from your past or from some of those early dealings versus how much were those hard lessons that you had to learn as you were ramping up with the company? Yeah, my family was somewhat entrepreneurial but wasn't evident until later. But I thought about it before I got started of how would I do these things? And I had the experience of the previous job to doing this. I was an expert witness and I went all over the country testifying in employment discrimination class actions, which is basically companies that are messed up. They're having employee problems because they did. And I always thought, gee, if I were running this company, I wouldn't do that. They were treating employees badly or based on their age or their race or their sex. And that's bad business. And so I thought if I ran a company, I wouldn't do it that way. And so when I did have a company, I thought I'm going to do it the way that avoids those kind of problems. And then the other thing I did that I maybe mentioned a little bit, I, I used to go to Harvard for a week every year for kind of an executive education thing, which it's not that I didn't learn stuff. I did learn stuff, but it mainly ratified and showed me that we were on the right track. I was still running the company when I started doing that, but I I was more of a CEO by then, and the guys were taking care of the price guide stuff. So that was helpful, but by then the die was cast. I guess the sports card insight that I would say is that the early hires in a company are so important because they either fight against the culture that the leader wants to establish, or they embrace it. And I was really blessed. The first employees was my sister. (laughs) That was a good cultural fit. Let's just put it that way. She was terrific in so many ways. And then some of the other people that I'm still friends with, most of them don't work for the company anymore. Trust is built on character and competency. I know you care. I know you've got the skills. You're going to do the right thing. Empirical humility is saying, I've got confidence that not only can you do it better than me, but you can do it well enough because they weren't trying to just be better than me. They were trying to just do a really good job to be Mm -hmm. accurate, to be timely. So I've had a great ride. My podcast is the opposite of that in the sense that I don't have a whole big team behind me unless you count guys like you and other guests and rich and people that I have new friends and old friends, but I like getting my hands dirty. I like sorting cards. That's why I like the hobby because it's tangible. There's a work product. There's a physicality to it. You feel good about it. You can point to it. You can put it on the wall. 
Yeah. So. I always tell people too, it's from the business side, there's like a puzzle that you're also trying to solve, right? How can I take this and how can I package it in a way that it adds value or identify value or other people don't see it and put something together in a way that people are going to enjoy it and want to buy it or collect it or add it to their collection. That puzzle solving aspect is very appealing to me as well. I really think this is stumbling onto it in hindsight, but I was hiring doers rather than dreamers. I didn't need people to be chief vision officers. I already was the chief vision officer. They could try to ask me good questions or say, hey, have you thought about this? But ultimately, I needed people who are going to be doers and not be sitting in a room thinking deep thoughts. We had to get magazines out. We had to get books out. They were diligent. They were hardworking. We had deadlines, Mike. That's why we hired people from newspaper background and from ad agency background. They understood deadlines. And they thought, gee, these deadlines are just monthly. We can handle that. So we were almost never late. In fact, the time we were late was when it was me, myself, and I. The second issue of the magazine missed the printer window. And that was me. I was a half a day late. And the printer said, oh, you missed your press time. Well, we can fit you in next week. I said, wait a minute. So the deal was you had to have it here at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's 1 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever it is. And I'd probably been up all night. So it wasn't like I wasn't working hard, especially our first 50 employees. Nobody ever said, hey, that's not my job. They said it needed to be done. I think you have that same attitude. So that I'm always going to get along well with people that have that attitude. Oh, yeah. Your crusade for sustainability is something that people ought to take seriously. No one can get burned if they do that. They can have some disappointment. They can have some exhilaration. They're never going to have the highest of the highs. Because they're not going to be out on a limb. Yep. They're not riding the roller coaster. They're enjoying a hobby that's sustainable. So I hope you'll keep preaching that. It's not really preaching. You're practicing it. I'm yep. practicing it too. Yep. Because I'm not going to go borrow money to buy right. a car. But if you're patient, but if you you're patient, you work your way up to it. You're working you can still, right? I was able to get a Jordan rookie. I was able to add my awesome Michael Jordan autograph basketball and my rock auto and complete my 67 